According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in that great resurrection chapter of Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, I'm joking, it's not a resurrection chapter. But the Holy Spirit will find a resurrection message in this chapter. If you've uh, been with us any length of time, you've probably noticed we're not overly liturgical and uh, we don't follow the Advent seasons or the calendar and I don't wear the robes and we don't decorate all the things. We do acknowledge that it is commonly referred to as Easter today and uh, we sang the hymns that we sang. Um, But we are in a Hebrews series and we're continuing on in what I believe is vital. I believe our our flock right now is under maximum angelic conflict testing. I believe that our marriages, our families, our young teenagers, our young adults, I think we're getting hammered left and right. And I'm so thankful that the Lord has brought us to Hebrews whereby we can learn how to enter into rest. And this is what is our daily provision, daily and moment by moment provision that we can enter into rest. And so we're seeing this We're seeing that it remains for some to enter it. Hebrews 4, 6. It remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. And just because it's been preached doesn't mean the person's going to obey and live it out. All right? And this is true for us today in our marriages and our families with our children. It's been preached but are we living the Word of God? Are we going to apply faith? Are we going to walk by faith? That's what we're called to do. And so he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as it's been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so this is where we are today. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and come before our Father's throne of grace, asking for His blessing on our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together. And Father, we thank You for the angelic conflict. We thank you for the provision. And Father, in our day and age, the conflict has never been tougher. The church age is the the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. And our testing is far greater than what Israel experienced, what the Gentiles experienced. And yet, Father, so too are the resources you've supplied. The uh, spiritual resources you've supplied, the armor of God, the the whole counsel of the Word of God, the mind of Christ, all of these tremendous divine resources are available for us if we only learn and listen and obey. So Father, open our eyes to this passage on this day. Show us the glory of your plan. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so day after day, as long as it's called today, and uh, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time. So what was that gap between Moses and David? About 400 years, right? 
And then another gap between David and Jesus for about a thousand years. And then another gap from Jesus to us now two thousand years. These gaps keep getting longer and longer and longer. But a rebellious people is rejecting the provision that God has made. And so Moses did not lead them into the promised land. Joshua did not lead them into the promised land. Well, he did. He led them into the promised land, but he did not provide for them the spiritual rest that was promised. And this is a, a vital issue that we ran out of time last week, and I want to get back to this week. I think it's powerful for us to uh, humble ourselves under the plan of God and to just be thrilled with how glorious he is and all the things that he has prepared for us. And so we see here in verse 8, if, and it's not true, if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. The truth is, Joshua led them to a political victory. He led them to a military conquest, and he did divide up the land. But then he had a closing speech, the famous choose you this day whom you will serve message of Jeremiah, of uh, Joshua, because many of them were still idol worshipers. And the issue is there as he told them to choose for themselves if they're going to serve the Lord or serve idols, uh, demonstrates the, uh, the spiritual reality of where they were. And uh, he did not provide them rest. If he had provided them the rest that was promised and spoken of, then Psalm 95 would not have been written. All right, There's a lot of things that would have been different. The kingdom would have been inaugurated way back in the day. And we talk about these what-ifs. We start to expand our thinking beyond what the Bible says into how might things have been differently if sinners had done different things, if other choices had been made. See, what if the Jews did not reject Jesus in his first advent? What if the Pharisees were humble and the Sanhedrin was humble? And what if the religious leaders identified their Christ? What if the the religious leaders joined the children in singing Hosanna on the Palm Monday entrance into Jerusalem? The kingdom of heaven was at hand, literally at hand. See, now, We've got our hindsight and we know that that's not what happened. We know that they crucified the Christ, that he rose again on the third day, that he ascended. uh, uh, And now the church, since Pentecost, we've been in the church waiting for Christ to come back. Because this is how things played out in time. Sometimes we think that's the only way it could have or the only thing that would have happened. But had other choices been made, other things would have happened. And the the Bible records some of these things for us, and I'm glad that they do. I'm glad that they do because they present for us these counterfactuals that show us that God's got an amazing plan. And resurrection is a part of that plan, by the way. And I'll show you that here this morning as well. There is a connection with Easter Sunday out of Hebrews 4, and you think I'm lying, but I'll, I'll get there before we're done. All right. So if Joshua had given them rest... And uh, last Sunday we dealt with this. We talked about how Joshua led Israel to conquest and settlement, but he did not lead the nation to a faith rest acceptance of God's will. And if you take the time to read through Joshua 21 and Joshua 22 and Joshua 23, you will find statements of Scripture that prove that he led them into rest. And the Bible says he gave them rest. But Hebrews 4 says he didn't give them rest. 
And if he had given them rest, then David would not have written Psalm 95 the way that it was written. All right? So how do we resolve this conundrum? How do we resolve the fact that Joshua says he gave them rest and Hebrews says he did not give them rest? And if he had given them rest, then uh, he would not have spoken of another day after that. All right? And so we recognize that, yes, there's a political rest, there is an earthly rest, there is... um, temporal life details of national prosperity and all of those things that should not, better not, be confused with a spiritual faith rest acceptance of God's will. You know, and is it any different than what happened in in the first advent of Jesus Christ when everybody was all excited about uh, maybe breaking the bonds of Rome and bringing Israel into a political freedom? But then when Jesus talks about sin and repenting from sin and dying on the cross, well, you know, would you quit talking about that? (laughs) They wanted him to stop talking about that rejection and crucifixion message. We want to hear about the kingdom coming in. See, failing to understand that both are true and that if they don't accept the spiritual provision, they're not worthy of the kingdom. That's why the, the main imperative by John the Baptist is repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's only righteous that enter, the righteous people enter the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So uh, Joshua did lead them to a conquest and settlement, but he did not lead the nation to a faith rest acceptance of God's will. The whole choose you this day message, it left matters for personal acceptance or rejection. So the nation now is not corporately going to be brought into the faith rest life. But individually, members can. And that's the, 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 the contrast. When you stop, you got to look at things corporately. All Israel will be saved. Corporately, the nation will enter into the millennial kingdom. But then in the meantime, individually, individually, a person can respond by grace through faith and get saved, right? And individually, a believer who is saved can faith rest his testing and enter into rest as we're commanded to do day by day and moment by moment. And I think that uh, part of this too is stressed here in Hebrews 4, uh, as we've already read here in verse 6, therefore since it remains for some to enter it. Okay, So there will be some, there will be a remnant that on an individual basis, individual believers can respond by faith and many do. Even in Romans 9, 10, 11, when Paul talks about that, a partial hardening of Israel has occurred until the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. But in the meantime, there presently remains a remnant. There are Jewish people who do get saved in the church age. So this whole message uh, is is, uh, a description of this. Choose you this day left matters for personal acceptance or rejection. And you know, Jesus restates this very bluntly when he closes the canon. And it's a, it's a difficult text, and it's it's tough to preach, and a lot of folks don't like it. But uh, let him be wicked still, you know. It's a it's an interesting uh, imperative in in Revelation twenty two eleven. Uh, in in the last chapter of the Bible, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. You know, and here's how Jesus closes the Bible in a way that I find very much parallel as, as by analogy with, uh, with Joshua's message of choose you this day whom you will serve. And as it comes to the entirety of the church age, that's who we are. 
we are children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And that, uh, that's, that's the, the Philippians message from last hour. That's, uh, that's who we are. And that's why as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that contrast of light and darkness gets, gets far uh, brighter. All right. Now, we, we didn't get into time uh, last week to deal with this. I want to use today to, to deal with this. It might seem odd as, a, as an Easter message, but I think it's vital. And if your understanding of omniscience is too limited, then I'm going to expand your, your understanding of omniscience here today. God knows everything, and everything is more than you think it is. All right, Because everything is every real thing and every unreal thing, but potential thing. Every what if, not every, see, every actuality and every potentiality. God knows them all. God knows of a circumstance in which Joshua gives them rest. As a, a, a what if scenario where Joshua gives them rest and David does not pen Psalm 95. God knows that. God knows other circumstances as well. And so we have these, uh, 1 Samuel 23 is another one. They're called, logically, if you ever study philosophy, you study logic, these are called counterfactuals. In other words, they're not true. They're counter to fact. But we're going to assume they could be true under other circumstances. And if they were true, then this is what else would be different. Like, if I had not become a pastor, I would have become a homicide investigator for the Seattle Police Department or, or something like that, right? We say, if this had not happened, then this would have happened, kind of a thing. All right. And so, and, and the Bible is full of these, and our life is full of these. But First Samuel 23 is an example. Counterfactuals are an important element of God's omniscient essence and God's sovereign plan. Counterfactuals are an important element of God's omniscient essence. He knows everything, including every if-then statement and every choice every human and every angel ever makes. He knows every outcome. And, uh, and this is vital for us. This is what makes God God and us us and what makes us so thankful that when we do make our bad decisions, we have not thrown ourselves for such a loop that God's plan uh, is not able to, uh, to deal with us in, uh, in that, all right? So here's the example, 1 Samuel 23. And if you have an inferior view, or for people who have an inferior view of omniscience, this passage destroys that bad theology. All right, 1 Samuel 23 uh, David is a renegade now on the run from King Saul, and he's got some men with him, and he hears that Keilah is in trouble. He hears that the Philistines are going to attack Keilah, okay? And you ever find yourself in a position where um, it really should be somebody else's job to do, but the Lord put, puts it on your plate, <laughs> you know? David could have just thrown up his hands and said, well, Big deal. Let King Saul deal with that. He's the king. I'm just a renegade. And uh, if the Philistines are attacking, well, and King, Small, and king Saul thinks he's a, he's a big smarty pants, he should go fight those Philistines, right? David doesn't do that. David hears that Keilah's in trouble, and he's able to come and help. But there's a concern. His men are afraid. He said, you know what? Yeah, we can whoop up on those Philistines real easy. But when we do, when we get caught there, then Saul's going to track us down, and then we'll be stuck. That's the concern. And so um, David is going to seek the will of God here. And um, in, in verse 10, he says, 
O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? So he wants to know, if Saul comes, are they going to give me up? Right? You know, if I'm a bandit hiding out and, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a safe house somewhere, are they going to wrap me out to the, to the cops when the cops arrive? Okay? And um, the Lord answers. Um, so this is a what if in a future contingency. David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men to the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. That is a positive answer. He knows the outcome. If you're still here and Saul shows up and Saul says, hand him over, the men of Keilah are going to hand you over. So David says, all right, we're out of here. David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah. They went wherever they could go. So they just kind of scattered like cockroaches when the light comes on. And they just scatter all these different directions. And when it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. Notice that? Saul never went to Keilah. And so that not only is this a counterfactual, but this is a counterfactual for a future contingency that never actually happened. And yet God knew about it, see. And so if you can wrap your mind around this and try to think it through, because um, there, there is a definition, it's a poor theology definition of, of, of uh, foreknowledge, where God only knows what he knows in foreknowledge because uh, he knows what he has foreordained. He knows what he has decreed. And God only knows the future because His sovereignty and His predestination has foreordained the future. He knows the future because of His, for, uh, because of his predestination. This passage disproves that. He didn't foreordain any of this. This didn't happen. Saul never came. He, Saul was not predestined to, to come to Keilah, and Saul didn't come to Keilah. But God knew the what if had those circumstances come about. Right? Are we clear? All right, so we have the example there, and it's, it's, it's undeniable. Likewise, Matthew 11, Jesus spoke on this. Matthew 11, Jesus talks with certainty about things that didn't happen but could have happened. And, if they, and they could have happened, and if they would have happened, then these other things also would have happened. But they didn't happen. And, and they didn't happen because they weren't predestined. They weren't foreordained. They weren't decreed by the divine decree. And they weren't decreed by the divine decree, so they didn't happen, but he still knew they could have happened. And he knew with certainty that they would have happened. See, that means that God in his omniscience knows things beyond what he has decreed. Such a limited view that limits foreknowledge to stuff he decreed. Are you kidding me? He knows every possible future, not just the one future he selected, because he selected the one future among all the options available to him so that he could provide the maximum glory for Jesus Christ for all eternity. So Matthew 11 and verse 21, verse 20 says, He began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Another verse certain theology wants to retranslate as could not repent. It didn't say they could not repent. It said they did not repent. And he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, had occur, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. You notice what this is saying? There was a bunch of miracles done in, in, in Chorazin and Bethsaida. All those miracles that were done there, if those had been done in Tyre and Sidon, now they weren't, okay? But they could have. They weren't. But if they would have, think about a tremendous revival that would have taken place. Tyre and Sidon, we're talking, this is the, the, the hometown of, of Jezebel, right? This is, this, these are some wicked people. And, uh, and yet they would have repented with those kind of miracles having been done. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah could have repented. So verse 22 says, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Okay, there's going to be degrees of punishment at the, lake of, at the great white throne and the consequences in the lake of fire. Some people are deeper in the lake of fire than other people. And there are consequences. Even uh, Ezekiel got a tour of the abyss and he found the Assyrians at the very bottom. All right, and other people were kind of piled on top. But there were layers of the abyss as Ezekiel got that tour. It's interesting. But to be more tolerable... You know, I don't want to be in the lake of fire in any circumstance, but um, maybe in a more tolerable way than a less tolerable way. Well, that's going to be Tyre and Sidon more tolerable than Bethsaida and Chorazin. And you, Capernaum, now Capernaum is the pinnacle. Capernaum takes the cake because Capernaum was his headquarters. He, lo- he relocated from Nazareth to Capernaum, set up his headquarters, and all the Galilean uh, uh, circuit journeys that he made all came out of Capernaum the hometown of uh, Peter and James and fishing headquarters there on the Sea of Galilee. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day, to this day, 2,000 years later. You talk about knowing consequences. You talk about a revival in Abraham's day. That could have been such a powerful revival that Sodom would still be an existing city 2,000 years later. That's an extraordinary prophecy. That's not only a what if. See, that's not just a what if for this decision and this immediate consequence. It's an immediate consequence plus 2,000 years of foreknown history. God knows the entire course of repentant Sodomite history for those 2,000 years. He knows that they would still be there in, in Jesus' day. So think about that. All right. And these are, these are vital for us because this is what we recognize in our accountability as volitional creatures that the choices we make we're accountable for and God's plan is going to encompass whether we make a right choice or a wrong choice here. We want to make a right choice. We want to enter into faith. We want to enter into by uh, claiming the promises, entering into rest. But if we don't, there are consequences and God's prepared to administer those consequences. He's not shocked at all. He's not switching to some kind of a, you know, uh, he's not scrambling like a quarterback that his uh, play got blown up on him. Okay? Still in Matthew, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 7. Just look at how many more of these there are. He, uh, this comes a couple chapters after he had told the Pharisees to, uh, to go read Hosea. And uh, they apparently didn't. And so he said, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion, not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. 
So if you would have known the doctrine of Hosea, Hosea 6.6, you would have a different attitude today. That's another what if. It's not true, but if it was true, then this would be the outcome. Matthew 23.30. See, people try to do the same thing, but we don't have the certainty God has, right? Jesus pronounces, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say... If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. So here's humans trying to do the same thing. They're trying to present a counterfactual. They're trying to say, well, if we would have been, then we wouldn't have done that. All right. Now, unlike God with perfect uh, foreknowledge, with perfect omniscience, with perfect righteousness, God is absolutely true in every statement he makes. God knows these realities. Human beings, we've got wishful thinking where we'd like to think so, wouldn't you, right? And yet, he tells them, you guys are a bunch of liars. You would have done worse than them. Not only would you have done what they did, you would have done worse because you're about to do worse. They, they executed the prophets. You're about to crucify the Christ. So don't think you wouldn't have done that, okay? And so when I make my statement about, well, you know, I would have been a, a homicide investigator, that's just my wishful thinking. I probably would have, you know, disobeying the plan of God, rejecting my call, defying the will of God. Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd have probably been flushed out of the police academy and gone to jail and been some kind of a criminal of my whole life. What a horrible life would that have been? I wouldn't have been married to Sharon, so I know my life would have been horrible. All right? So we have these counterfactuals, and God knows them all. And that should be a huge, huge encouragement for, for all of us. Uh, chapter 24. And um, verse 22, talking about the great tribulation. There will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. God's got a sovereign control on all the what-ifs. And He knows that Antichrist and the plan of Satan and the tribulation has the potential to destroy all humanity from the face of the earth. But He stops. He steps in and stops that. He limits it. He, he keeps that what-if from coming about. Verse 43 of the same chapter. Be sure of this. If the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Right? I mean, let's face it, that's just normal. If you would have known, you wouldn't have done that. If you would have known they were going to tow your car away, would you have parked there? All right? Well, I'm hitting everybody this morning. So we have these counterfactuals. Chapter 26 and verse 24. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Had Judas Iscariot been a miscarriage? I believe the, the uh, age of accountability principle. Think about it. <laughs> it would have been good for that man to have not been born. All right. But as it is, he was born, and as it is, he... 
He's the son of perdition, and he betrayed the Christ. All right? Now, it's not on the slide, but let me give you one more, and this is our Easter message. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. When we talk about things that are true, but what if they weren't true? What if the resurrection wasn't true? What if there was no resurrection? Now, thankfully there is. And so as such, we can walk in the newness of life. But 1 Corinthians 15, 12 uses the same kind of logic, same kind of thought process, where it considers an alternative where something isn't so. So if Christ is preached, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 12, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Right? Now, it's not written on the slide. I'm just throwing this out here, extra credit. Okay, so you've got to write it down yourself, and, and uh, I'm not going to charge you any extra for it. This is free. Okay? The same price of admission gets you this part here, too. Um, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, and this is our counterfactual, if there's no such thing as resurrection, well, then not even Christ has been raised. How unthinkable is that? Can you imagine? Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross. He accepted the wrath of God for our sins. The end. Wow. No resurrection. Then we've hoped for Christ in this life only. You want to get saved and have physical life? (laughs) Or do you want to get saved and have eternal life? All right. And if there is no resurrection, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Also, we're false witnesses because God testified that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. You know, if if there is no resurrection, then God's a liar because God said he raised him. That's a sad thing. If the dead are raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. You and me, we're the biggest idiots in the world. What are we wasting our life for in in, uh, some kind of a biblical Christian morality when there's no resurrection? What are we doing? There's no resurrection. There's no salvation. There's no eternal life. Then then we just become a big Nike commercial. Was it Nike or Adidas? Who had the life is short, play hard um, commercials? Nike. Okay. Anyway. And not only that, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They lived their whole life as believers. They died in Christ. And what gloomy funerals those have to be now. There's no resurrection. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, here's another counterfactual. We haven't. You and I have not hoped in Christ in this life only. Praise God. We've hoped in Christ for this life and the life to come. But if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And so we see it here. All right. Counterfactuals. Counterfactuals, I think they're an important element of God's omniscient essence and God's sovereign plan. The fact is Joshua could have given them rest. Moses, before Joshua, could have given them rest. David could have given them rest. He told them, today if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. David could have given them rest. Jesus could have given them rest. At each step of the way, They failed to unite the Word of God with faith. And so, therefore, it now remains, there then remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And as we return to Hebrews 4, we now get verse 9 and verse 10. 
So if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. We might say if David had given them rest, then Jesus would not have spoken of another day after that. Or we might say if Jesus had given them rest, then the author of Hebrews would not have spoken of another day after that. But here we are reading in Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews says, there remains a rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now we've got to understand this in two ways, and we'll take some time. But there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This gets abused a lot. This this verse gets pounded by folks that try to defend their replacement theology. And they try to use the expression people of God as if it's uh it 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 uh, proves that the church is Israel, that Israel was the church, that we're all just one great big people of God in a generic kind of way, failing to, I think, see what was really uh, a sweet, sweet way to talk about Israel and the church simultaneously by using this kind of language. And that's what we see here. Because the people of God remains Israel as the earthly people and us as the heavenly people. We've got to read this verse twice and take it both ways. And we'll do that here presently. Therefore, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And this is true for the earthly people of God. There remains a rest. Israel still has a promised future rest. The earthly people of God, that is Israel, they have a remaining promised rest. If you think they don't, then there's a whole lot of prophecies that we just have to chalk off as being abandoned or wrong or unfulfilled or God gave up on them. Are we then, we allegorize them to such a twisted point that they don't really exist anymore in any real way. Israel's coming kingdom will feature a physical rest in their physical land, but must be volitionally accepted. God's not going to do for them what he did with Joshua. In other words, he's not going to politically bring them in and give them the millennial kingdom without a spiritual repentance. He did that under Joshua. He he gave them a military conquest, but they were idol worshipers. He's not going to do that at Second Advent. Jesus won't do what Joshua did. He's not going to bring a bunch of rebels into the promised land. He's going to bring them to the wilderness. He's going to judge them. He's going to execute the rebels, and he's only going to bring the righteous into the millennial kingdom. So there remains a promise of rest for the people of God. Now, we'll, we'll teach this, and then we'll go back and we'll read the verse a second time, and we'll put ourselves in there, because yes, we are, in the church, a heavenly people. And we are God's people, we are the people of God, but we are the heavenly people of God, and we have a promised rest, and we don't have to wait for Armageddon to enter that rest, we can enter that rest today. And we're told to enter that rest today. All day, every day, we, we, you and I can enter into our church age rest, even while Israel is waiting for the second advent of Jesus Christ. All right, so we have the earthly people of God. If there's any question on uh, who the people of God are, it's the Jewish nation in contrast with all the Gentile nations of this earth. Uh, Psalm 47.9 makes that clear.
Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Those are great verses, not what I was looking for. That's Psalm 46, Psalm Psalm 47. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with a, sh- with a sound of a trumpet. What's with all the trumpets and the shouting? Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. All right, so yeah, he's going to come, he's going to conquer. There's all the peoples of the earth, but one of those peoples is his people. That's the Jewish people, Israel, his earthly people. Hebrews 11.25 also stresses the fact that it's Israel, the people of God. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He very easily could have denied that, no, who are those Jewish people, right? I'm, I'm the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm, I'm a prince of Egypt. Could have been the next Pharaoh. All right, but consider, and choosing to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And so the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, the earthly people of God, they do have a remaining promised rest. The promise that was offered in Moses' day, the promise that was offered in Joshua's day, the promise that David spoke of, the promise that John the Baptist spoke of, the promise that Jesus spoke of, those promises are still pending. Israel will be brought into their land. They will have a national rest, a national salvation. This will be brought about for them corporately or else God's a liar. Isaiah 11 and verse 10. You see, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from its roots will bear fruit. And uh, he will delight in the law of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Here's a politician that's not going to bend a lobbyist or popular opinion. He's going to judge with the absolute standard of God's righteousness. With righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. We're going to have perfect government on this earth. And yet, Gentiles are going to hate it. And so he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Capital punishment in the millennial kingdom. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them. This is still a future. This is still a promise. Don't try this today. But it remains a promised rest for the people of God. And uh, as it's presented here, 
Verse 10, in that day, the nations, otherwise known as the Gentiles, will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. There remains a promised rest for the people of God. Or else God's a liar. Uh, Isaiah 28, 12. You know, and the problem is he's ready to give them rest and they don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. They're involved in their filthiness. They're involved in their idolatry. And so you notice there are a bunch of drunkards in verse 7. They reel from wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter while rendering judgment. You ever try to preach drunk? I don't recommend it. I've never tried. You don't? I wouldn't want to. How about prophesying under the influence? No. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. Nasty, isn't it? To whom would he teach knowledge? To whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from the milk, those just taken from the breast. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. You know, the the gift of tongues, the, the introduction of the church was such a warning for the Jewish people that the king is ready to give them their kingdom but the table's full of vomit. There's not a single clean place. And that they're having their stewardship revoked for the time being until such time as they are humbled and return to him. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, here is repose, but they would not listen. Moses offered, Joshua offered, David offered, Jesus offered. And when they crucified the Christ, that was it kingdom was delayed and the mystery of the church was then unfolded and the gift of tongues were gentile dogs talking to the jewish people about the glorious things of jesus christ that was their warning that uh, national destruction was on the way so the word of the lord to them would be order on order order on order line on line line on line a little here a little there that they may go and stumble backward be broken snared and taken captive That prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD when Titus destroyed Jerusalem and Israel was removed as a nation from world history. So the earthly people of God still have a remaining promised rest. However, Israel's coming kingdom is going to feature a physical rest in their physical land, but it must be volitionally accepted. He cannot come until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We saw this last week, Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. See, God won't coerce their volition, but he has to bring about the circumstances in which they will make different volitional choices. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Moses wanted to, Joshua wanted to, David wanted to, Jesus wanted to. 
how often I wanted to, but you were unwilling. See that? Now it's not that human volition trumps the the sovereignty of God, it's just that the sovereignty of God has decided that He's going to honor human volition in every circumstance. And so what does He do? Does He force them to choose differently? Did He force Jonah to choose differently? Or did He put them in circumstances in which Jonah decided, okay, (laughs) I'll do what you tell me now. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's Psalm 118 again. Okay? This is what's required. And so the tribulation, the tribulation accomplishes many things. It does pour out God's wrath on the Gentiles, pours out God's wrath on the nations. It does accomplish many things worldwide. But one of the biggest things tribulation does with the rise of Antichrist and Satan's global persecution of the Jewish people, it, uh, it drives Israel to repentance. It takes hell on earth for the Jewish nation to be humbled, to accept, to look upon Him whom they pierced, and to call out to Jesus Christ for their salvation. And it will happen. They will get a physical rest. But it's not going to come by bargaining with Antichrist. It's not going to come by negotiating a peace treaty with the Palestinians. It's not going to come about by a United Nations uh, mandate. They'll try all of those. They're going to have a peace when they are humbled to accept the Messiah, the Messiah they crucified in His first advent. They have to accept. They have to fulfill Psalm 118. They have to have a volitional acceptance of this. In other words, they have to have the spiritual faith rest to accept the physical land rest that they're provided. Go back and read Hebrews 4.9 a second time and say, well, wait a minute. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. How about us? We're the people of God. What's our application here? And yes, we do. We have an application here. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, the heavenly people of God, that is the church. And we can prove that from Titus 2.14 and 1 Peter 2.10, the heavenly people of God, we also have a promised rest. And this promised rest comes in the daily application of walking with the Lord. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, and the daily emphasis of chapter 4 here in Hebrews. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 10, verse 11. This is daily, right here, right now, not waiting for a second advent, not waiting for tribulation, not waiting for a national deliverance. But right here, right now, individuals entering into this rest by faith. And so this is our invitation to enter into this rest by faith. But I'm out of time. We're going to do communion today, aren't we? So we'll pick up on this next week that we enter into this rest. We are the heavenly people of God. And we already have a king on a throne. We are his bride And we enter into this rest today, all day, every day, if we choose to do so. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the resurrection of our Savior and the blessing we have today. Uh, Thank you for the promised rest that's available for us. A promised rest that it doesn't matter if we're Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female, if we live in a particular land grant or not, that uh, where we are, wherever we go, Father, we... uh, We are part of 
the church age and in the, the bride of Christ. And we have today available to us the uh, being yoked together with Jesus Christ, that we walk by faith. We come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he gives us rest. And so uh, we're applying the mechanism now that tribulational saints will have to apply, that Israel will apply the millennium. We have the, the promised rest today. And I thank you for this, uh, this amazing promise. And so, Father, we uh, pray for this message. We pray for these truths. We've uh, studied some pretty deep things in terms of counterfactuals and omniscience and what-if scenarios. I thank you, Father, that uh, uh, your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts as the heavens are higher than the earth. As we just catch a glimpse of them here and there, Father, we just thank you for being so faithful and loving us. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right.